Hi, welcome to another episode of Stardust MQ, I'm Cameron Furlong. My guest today is Marnie Ogg. Marnie is a staunch defender of the night sky. After 30 years in the travel industry, Marnie founded the Australasian Dark Sky Alliance, which is a non-profit organisation dedicated to the protection of the night sky in Australia and the education of the public on the benefits of dark skies. I had the opportunity to talk to Marnie about her experiences in the astrotourism industry, as well as her work with ADSA protecting the night sky. All right, so you started off in the travel travel industry. What made you jump over to astronomy or that, that kind of business? So I started in the astrotourism world, I guess, as it's now called. It wasn't when I sort of started. Um, because my parents had come back from a tour to Libya. I think this is 2005. And there they saw a total solar eclipse. And at the time I, I'd just come back from leading a tour to Nepal where we'd been trekking in the mountains and seeing all these wonderful things. And um, just the way things work out in Nepal, you know, you get there, you've paid for everything in advance, but the bus doesn't show up, the hotel roof falls in, you know, all these sorts of things. And at the end of the tour, I'd actually spent more money than I'd made on it. It was, um, so I was a bit disheartened and dad came back from this eclipse tour and said, look, why don't you start something in astrotourism? And what, there's a total solar eclipse happening in, in Australia in 2012 uh, and uh, having just seen this one in Libya, they, they had four and a half thousand people camping in the desert in Libya to see a three minute phenomenon, you know. So I thought, well, this sounds good. You know, obviously there's a bit of appeal in that. And in 2006, I started pursuing, you know, what a solar eclipse was, where we were going to see it, how we were going to do it, and invited Fred Watson uh, to be our host and had lunch with Fred and, and he said, yep, that'd be great. I'd love to be the host of your tour. But by the way, I've written this book called Stargaze of the Life and Times of the Telescope. And I think it would be great to turn that into a tour and show the history of how the telescope developed through Europe. So it sort of just, it, it started organically, but I guess what I'm, I'm appreciating now more than anything else is, uh, particularly through COVID, is really appreciating how wonderful Australia is for astronomy and uh, how much potential there is for astrotourism within Australia which we haven't even started to tap into so yeah that's a long answer <laughs> and it's so was that your sort of first foray into astronomy or was that something that had always kind of been there with you since the beginning it was always there with me in a very basic way. So I'm not scientifically minded. Uh, both my parents were scientists, so I wanted to do anything but science through school. Uh, but if there was a time that we were going on holiday um, and my parents were avid campers, we'd be in the middle of the Australian desert looking up at the night sky, camping, uh, counting satellites, looking for shooting stars, and Dad would talk about astronomy and the ecliptic and you know, this planet and that, these, these, you know, objects are these far, this many light years away. And so I guess I always had a basic understanding, but um, an appreciation which still carries me through in many ways for just how amazing the night sky is to, to bring you back to yourself, to bring you, put everything into perspective, just to make you question why we're here and, and you know, really give you an insight to the whole, you know, 
workings of our universe really so yeah and you mentioned before with with um with COVID and you've sort of developed this appreciation for Australian ast- astronomy and astrotourism um like what was what, what what happened that made you start to think about that mm-hmm. um so Fred and I've since that total solar eclipse in 2012 led something like 39 tours six of them to the Arctic, uh, where we've seen the Aurora Borealis and several to Europe and America. And we would go to places that apparently had wonderful night skies. And um, often we couldn't do stargazing because they were clouded out. Um, Or if they were, it really wasn't anywhere near as dark as what I was seeing over my own head in, you know, know, at home. Um, And we had gone away and I came back from a trip and was walking in the bush and was sort of thinking exactly this. And Fred had been talking about, so Fred's um, now my partner. So we've, we've moved on from just having a business relationship. (laughs) (laughs) And he'd been talking at home about the fact that um, Coonabarabran and the Warrumbungle National Park Siding Spring Observatory, where he was working, had wanted to put a dark sky park into position there because they have such dark skies and they wanted to preserve that and also to give the town of Coonabarabran a bit of a bonus for being so wonderful and protecting the sky. So having come back from a trip, having all these thoughts in my head, thinking about astrotourism opportunities, I came back and said to Fred, look, I'd like to help put that application together to try and get the dark sky park into place. And I have to say that whilst I had a um, a sense of enjoyment around dark places and you know being in the night at time atmosphere, you know as a kid I used to I don't know why I used to love it when my granddad would drive through this stretch of road because it, it would get dark and it would get comfortable and I just feel like I was going somewhere good. I guess I was going to my grandparents' house, but uh, so that that sense of comfort's always been there for me, but. As I started working on the application for the International Dark Sky Association designation, I started to realize just the implications of light on our atmosphere, on our ecology and our environment, um, and started to realize how um, when I was in city places with lots of artificial light I would find myself feeling a bit stressed and aggressive you know and then when I'd come back to these darker places I'd really enjoy it so I I didn't have a strong understanding of what a dark sky park was or the benefits or or all of the things that I've come to appreciate now but I the more I do it the more I appreciate it and I guess I think that's one of the things that that becomes addictive to everybody around night skies. Mm. So what was the process like getting uh, the Warren Bungle uh, Park recognised as a, as a dark sky um, sanctuary? What was what was that like? Mm-hmm. Um, I think in comparison to some places that have gone down the path of getting designations, so there are three in Australia now. Um, there's the Warren Bungle Dark Sky Park, uh, the Mid Murray River Dark Sky Reserve, and um, the jump up, which is up at Winton, which is a sanctuary. Um, we've all had different ways of, of getting our designation. Uh, and I think probably whilst we were the first in Australia, we were probably one of the easiest to obtain too. 
And that is because Siding Spring Observatory, which is the um, national optical home for the National Optical Telescope and 27 other telescopes up there. Um, they've, they've been monitoring light pollution and light in the vicinity for 40 years and have very strict guidelines around a radius around the observatory. So within 18 kilometres, you're only allowed four outdoor lights, you know, within 30 kilometres, you're, you know, and, and, and so the further out, the more light you're allowed to use. Um, and because the people of Coonabarabran and the other connecting shires have already been well educated about trying to keep their lights low, we didn't have to go through that whole process of educating people in the area, which can take the longest time, actually. Um, we also had a, a benefit, which is a very much a double-edged sword, that the Warrumbungle National Park had pretty much had catastrophic fires that had burnt down their major infrastructure. And so all the toilet blocks that they were having to rebuild and the National Park Centre headquarters um, all had to be built again. And so the bad lighting that had actually infiltrated over the years was able to be implemented with some really good lighting. So the process itself is A, to educate people about the conditions about light pollution to reduce it, B, to make sure that all the lights within a certain boundary comply with dark sky guidelines, and uh, C, just that, that you have engaged with stakeholders and that you have all this in place. So we were pretty lucky. We, we, we got designation within 12 months, which is I think probably one of the quickest when I'm when we were talking to the IDA about it. Some people take 10 years to get it just because of, you know, you might have a local group that feel concerned that if, you know, you're turning all the lights off and you're going to make it unsafe, all those sorts of concerns that people have. And you've got to address them and you've got to go through it diplomatic and make diplomatically and make sure that people feel comfortable with the decisions that are happening. So, yeah. But as again, it just taught me so much about our own environment and how we forget that conservation doesn't stop when the sun goes down. You know, we have this mindset around preserving the world and making it better, but it seems to be as soon as we go into our houses and turn our lights on, we forget that we're actually still impacting the nighttime, you know, the nighttime environment with our lights. And was that that process something that inspired you to found uh, the Dark Sky Alliance or was that something that sort of compacted with other experiences or was that around the same time? Uh, my, my timeline's wrong. <laughs> uh, no, no, your timeline is is correct. It was, as all things in life, I guess it was a combination of events. So we got the Dark Sky Park confirmed and then about 12 months later I put in an application to get some money to run a dark sky conference up at Siding Spring and uh, was successful with that through um, the chief scientist and through Destination New South Wales. And so we ran the first dark sky conference in Australia called Riding the Light Wave of Technology. And I was very keen. So if we, we go back to all of you know the very beginnings of this, um, astronomers have known for hundreds of years that as soon as you turn a light on, you see fewer stars in the night sky. And the result of that is that observatories have moved further and further, you know, into darker and darker places, further and further away from cities. Uh, so astronomers are, are, are 
usually very aware of light pollution um, and, uh, and have sometimes been proactive in, in trying to make a difference. Sometimes they just think it's part of, you know, life now, the modern life, and we just have to accept it, which is fair enough. But I was very keen not just to make it an astronomy conference that we talked about light pollution. Um, I was very keen to bring in ecologists, uh, astro-tourism ventures, uh, industry professionals, even advertising. And, and in fact, we also had the police there sort of talking about every aspect of light and light at night and how it's beneficial and consequential in how we use it. Uh, and it was fabulous. You know, it was one of the first things that I've been to where you had this real cross-pollination of different ideas where people were saying, well, I'm, I'm a turtle ecologist and, you know, we can't have any lights whatsoever. But, I, you know, and there's an urban planner standing in the same room saying, but we need people to walk up and down the esplanade. So how do we create a lighting environment that's good for humans as well as for turtles? Um, and so having so many experts in the room, we had 100 people come to that conference. There were probably about 10 people with a variety of skills. So we had a doctor, uh, we had an urban ecologist, we had a turtle marine uh, biologist, we had lighting professionals, we had advertising professionals. And we all just said, look, let's continue this on. Um, and within six months, we felt that uh, we wanted to keep that momentum. We wanted to make it a professional organisation. We wanted to be able to speak on behalf of these various different groups of people to relevant bodies such as state governments, local governments, um, you know, industry partners, etc. And that's how the Australasian Dark Sky Alliance was formed uh, with charity status about eight months later, which was fantastic. So it just all rolls on. And so what kind of work have you done now uh, after founding the, the Alliance? Um, so as a charity, we are required in order to maintain our charity status to be educational primarily. Uh, and given that the, the pollution itself, light pollution, is so unknown in Australia, um, we're relatively lucky that we live in a continent that is still rather dark. You know, if you look at our, our, our continent from space at night, it's really only the capital cities that have these light plumes that you can see from space, um, as opposed to the northern hemisphere where you, you're very lucky if you find a single dark patch. You know, the, there's such so much light in Italy and uh, Italy is one of the worst, the Netherlands is also quite bad. And they happen to be the countries that have done the most work and research in, in the Northern Hemisphere on light pollution too. So whilst we're very uh, lucky that Australians and New Zealanders, because it's the Australasian Dark Sky Alliance, um, still live in very dark places, it's very easy that we could quickly become very light polluted with the rollout of LEDs and the, you know, light is so easy to use now. It's relatively cheap. Uh, you know, it's, it's available. We have a huge growing technology around it. It would be very easy for us to very quickly over, over light pollute our country. And light pollution is, a, is actually being recognized as the fastest growing pollution in the world. 
year on year, it's it's been measured growing at two percent um, within in the last ten years, uh, simply because it doesn't feel like a pollution. You know, if you look at a dirty river, you can see nappies or chip packets or whatever floating down the river. Um, if you see air pollution, you know, you can see the smog in the air and you can sometimes smell it, you know, but light doesn't feel like something dangerous. Uh, and so we just leave it on. We just use it all the time without thinking about it. And so to answer the question, um, our, our key thing has really just been, let's get this message out to the public, you know, um, how do we, we get to do talks to, to interest groups, <clears throat> excuse me, we successfully ran a Guinness World Record Challenge on the 21st of June in 2020, where we had 11,500 people sign up to do a, an online lesson on light pollution uh, within a 24-hour period. And yes, we were, the, we were successful Guinness World Record holders. Um, we've had uh, school groups that have signed up to do um, curriculum that teachers have become really interested in light pollution. And so we, we had four and a half thousand students sign up for that. Um, yeah, we've, we've just been out there talking as much as possible, basically. Uh, we've run events, we've done stargazing parties um, and, and really very proud of the fact that we're now being invited to do collaboration work with people like the Department of Agriculture, Water and Environment some of the local councils, um, often just questions about, so I've heard about this dark sky stuff, what is it? Um, yeah, so, and it's been busy for a bunch of volunteers that are already quite um, occupied with their very busy, hectic lifestyles as well, but it's, 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 it's very, very rewarding. Hmm. Would you say it's one of the more most rewarding things you've, have you done over your career? Or? <sighs> yeah. It is to to think about the fact that um, our organisation, and even on a very personal note, to think about the fact that I've I've been involved with changing people's mindsets, and not not in a you know not in a confrontational way, but just you know literally, it's kind of that light bulb moment where you think. <laughs> You can see people go, oh, I get it. I get that this is this is important. You know, I remember two particular examples, and um, one was when I was out at site, actually both at Siding Spring, and I, I was taking a tour group out there. And as always, I talk a little bit about dark sky preservation, etc. And I said to the group. Um, you know, 50% of our natural environment is the sky and 50% of our day is at night and yet we've, we very rarely talked about preserving it. And this woman was just like, oh, my, she just, she literally screamed, oh, my God, you're right, 50% <laughs> of our environment. Um, and, you know, she emailed me afterwards. She was totally engaged with it afterwards. And, and the other thing which sort of blew me away was a, a woman in her 70s who had signed up for a tour because all her friends were doing it. I don't think she had any idea where she was going to end up for the night or what they were doing, but she was happy to go along. 
And we pulled a telescope out and pointed it up to the night sky in the dark sky park and said to her, that's Saturn. And, you know, probably every astronomer who's ever showed anyone Saturn, you know, often that reaction is, oh, my God, it looks fake. It's not real. How can that be like that? But this woman just had tears streaming down her face and she said, I can't believe I'm 70 years old and I've never seen this. It's just so beautiful. And I think, you know, if you give her that experience and she goes and shows her grandchildren and so on and so forth, you just never know how you've turned someone onto science or, you know, solving the easily solved pollutant um, of light pollution. You can turn off a few lights so that you can see Saturn, then it's all been worth it. Stardust MQ is a podcast made with the support of the Macquarie University Department of Physics and Astronomy and the Macquarie University Physics and Astronomy Society. Thanks to Oliver Doherty for editing this episode. Our intro music is by Poddington Bear and our outro theme is from Ketsa. I'll talk to you next time.